Welcome. Welcome, everybody, to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. There's a long and unfortunate tradition uh, in the West of depicting poor people in the rest of the world as objects of pity, sometimes unable uh, to help themselves out of their obviously miserable conditions. This tradition, willingly or not, is strengthened by the foreign aid industry uh, that implicitly and oftentimes explicitly claims that the world's poor cannot progress without outside charity. In this narrative, of course, uh, the people who uh, know better are the rich in the West. And the appeals to give money uh, officially and through so-called NGOs uh, sometimes lead to grotesque depictions of the world's poor that reinforce the view of entire people ignorant or unwilling uh, and unable to help themselves. Who hasn't seen, uh, for example, uh, appeals for more aid money uh, based on images of starving children? This is what in the aid industry is called poverty porn. But the aid industry uh, doesn't just rely on extreme portrayals of the poor in order to perpetuate a patronizing uh, approach to development. It has been very adept at doing so through a top-down technocratic approach uh, to aid and uh, advice. The problem is that that approach hasn't worked very well. And uh, if you take a look at the the experience, the record of aid over so many years, uh, you see that uh, there isn't any evidence of uh, correlation between aid and growth. And aid has often uh, produced more harm than good. In fact, if you, look at, if you <clears throat> review the literature on aid, the academic literature on aid, there's a consensus about the real limits of aid to promote development in a broad way and in a sustainable way. Uh, and there's a huge gap between what the scholarly research shows and uh, the practice of aid. That's why I'm so pleased to be able to host uh, this film, uh, Poverty Inc., today, because it does a good job in showing why uh, some of the reasons why aid fails. And uh, it brings to light the, the dignity and the potential of poor people uh, around the world. And that also is a breath of fresh air. For those of us who work on these issues in Washington, DC, believe me, that's a breath of fresh air. Well, this film has been shown in 40 international film festivals, 100 universities, and 160 cities uh, so far to much uh, acclaim uh, across the political spectrum. And I think as you'll see this film, you'll see why. We're going to watch this film. It's an hour and a half, and then after that, we'll speak with uh, one of the co-producers who's with us, Mark Weber, and we'll have a discussion. You'll be able to ask questions. Uh, it won't go on too long, and then we'll have a, a reception. So without much more, let me, let's, let's watch the film. Thanks very much.
Well, we now have time for a brief discussion with Mark Weber, one of the uh, co-producers of this film. Let me just quickly introduce him. He, uh, he's been involved with uh, other documentaries, at least one uh, feature film, which was called Strong Bodies Fight, the story of boxing for Bangladesh, which earned 20 film festival honors and coverage on NBC, Fox, and other networks. He's an avid uh, traveler and a graduate of the Great Books program at Notre Dame. He's been all around the world uh, with a lot of experiences. Um, I'm sure that people have a, a lot of questions that they would want to ask you, but let me begin by asking you the, the first question, and that is, how did you become involved in this film and, and why? Uh, well, thank you for having me, first of all. It's, it's, uh, I'm so happy and honored to, to be here at this, at this great institute. And, so many people out here to discuss. You know, we so much of this film, as you can tell, is is really sink our, sinking our teeth into the complexity of, of these issues and not not um, calling to the to the siren call of simple solutions and donate here buttons, but really uh, opening up that can of worms. And for me, it, my journey to to this film and to this uh, to this day here in this discussion started at Notre Dame when I began the production of that other film you mentioned, Strong Bodies Fight. The, the University of Notre Dame boxing team has a very interesting history. Since 1931, we've been um, supporting Catholic missions in Bangladesh. And uh, the reason Bangladesh is because Notre Dame, which was a French mission uh, founded in the 1800s, also sent missionaries to the east, and they ended up in the Bengal region of India. And uh, I ended up joining the, the boxing team my freshman you're, year. You were a boxer? I was, yeah. <laughs> you must have a lot of upper body strength. You Used to. Better not criticize Used to, you. yeah. Uh, and it, the program's very interesting for this, for this, you know, fighting in the ring, but also fighting for something bigger than yourself through this charity tournament that we host. And now it's uh, over 100 men. Uh, I'm sorry, over 200 men, over 100 women. Um, it's featured on ESPN3 every year. It's a big, big deal. And since the founding, uh, there's been this motto, strong bodies fight that weak bodies may be nourished. And this is on our billboards and our t-shirts, and it kind of captures this deeper mission of the program. And yet, because of distance and uh, wars that were going on there, no students in all those uh, years had ever actually been to Bangladesh. And so um, when I served as the captain and president of the team, we decided to, to take that first trip and begin the production of this, of this film to tell the story. And I'll never forget the first school we visited. It was in a tribal area, a poor all-girls school. And um, we, we come into this, to this uh, school, and it's a tin roof top, and the girls come out singing their cultural songs and dancing their cultural dances, presenting us with flowers. And it was a very emotional moment. I was, I was kind of tearing up. And uh, then our Bengali uh, priest introduces us. And he says, these are the Notre Dame boxers, and we owe them a great deal of gratitude for all they've done for us. And they have this beautiful motto. It's strong bodies fight, and they are the strong bodies, that weak bodies may be nourished, and we are the weak bodies. And the girls were like, what? <laughs> and one girl, verbally, she says, like, nah. <laughs> like, I don't get it. And all of a sudden, this, this motto, which we had taken so much pride in, you know, is the first thing every novice would hear when they come into the gym. It's everywhere on our posters and our videos and everything. All of a sudden, it made us kind of sink in shame. And um, I didn't have the words for it then, but now, looking back, 
and having worked on this project, I realized that we had turned uh, these, these people into the objects of our charity. We had turned them into a cause. And the moment you just sit across the room from somebody and say that motto out loud, you, and you see a person instead of a cause, your whole understanding of that changes. And I think that's the beauty of documentary film, is it allows us to encounter persons, like real individuals with real stories, to look them in the eyes and hear their voices and inflection, and to, and to kind of just take, even just for a moment, step into their shoes. And, um, and, and I think that shifting from, the, I think, the predominant way we're going about poverty and development now is, in a sense, we make ourselves the protagonists of the development narrative. We put ourselves as that A-list actor who's, who's the star of the show. And we, we have all of these summits and these goals, and, and then our way is the way. And, um, and I think in, in doing that, we're, we're really taking power from where it belongs and instead of elevating the, the appropriate protagonists of the story, which are those little girls, which are the people that you see in the film. And so I think there are supporting roles that we can play, and there are opportunities for mutually beneficial exchange, cultural exchange, economic exchange, political exchange. But the way we're doing it now is, um, is very broken, as we can see. And so uh, it, it starts, as I had to start, not just with policy shifts, but with a shift in culture, a shift in the philosophical view of the person. Well, uh, I think we have time for several questions. If you have a question, raise your hand and wait for the microphone and then identify yourself and your affiliation. Uh, we'll start over here. Do we have a mic? Please, right there, please. Right there. not going to give it to me. <laughs> We're censoring you. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, certainly I have no quarrel with, with uh, most of your arguments. I'm curious, however, as to why you were so, I won't say kind, but you let local governments off pretty easily. You've pointed out that the ability to own the plot of land to farm, or the ability to own your shop or your house, uh, the importance of the rule of law um, is is critical to getting out of poverty. But you were you, you didn't spend much time um, chastising the governments that prevent those things from happening. Now, good governance is, is of course a very important uh, topic to explore. Being Americans, we felt that. Uh, you know, in 91 minutes, given that you only have 91 minutes, we wanted to focus on our policies and our, and our predominant frameworks and allow Africans and Haitians and um, Southeast Asians or, or whatever, whatever country uh, is in question in the film to, talk, to, to, to focus on that project. I think it's also, there's, we wanted to avoid a tendency to, um, to kind of point the finger at, uh, at these countries and say, well, you, the reason you're not growing is, is, is corruption, which is a very common thread. We wanted to tell stories that hadn't been told before, and we felt that that one is kind of very much in the forefront of the, of the, of the predominant narratives. At the same time, I think it's very important that when we talk about corruption and governance, that we don't just talk about black and brown countries. I met a Harvard Business School grad uh, who, who is from Greece originally, but working in Guatemala 
uh, met him at the Guatemalan premiere of the film. Very interesting gentleman. And, and I said, so why, why did you decide to come build companies in Guatemala? And I was expecting come some social impact uh, reason. And he goes, because Greece was too corrupt. <laughs> and I found that very interesting because I was like, you know, it, 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 so often there is kind of this, um, you guys are doing it wrong, and we, you know, if, if, et cetera. And so I want to affirm your point. Absolutely, these local governments, uh, there's so many problems with them. But I think that the point we, that I like to emphasize from the film is from Michael Fairbanks, is he says, one of the problems with aid is that it severs the sovereign link between a government and its people. It, it actually undermines this process of eliminating corruption and it and incentivizes corruption in many ways. And so we wanted to focus on how we are contributing to bad governance as opposed to and it really assuming some of the blame for that and allowing other people, namely people from these countries, to assume responsibility for changing their interior systems. Right here in the, in the front? Yeah. Right here in the front. Yeah, the woman in the, in the front, please. Hi, thank you for this uh, screening. It was a lot to chew over. Uh, I'm a reporter with CQ Roll Call, and I wondered if you could talk. It seemed to me that you were making an argument in the film that you know foreign aid um, isn't working, let's reform it, but I didn't hear that you were saying let's stop humanitarian engagement and financial and foreign development engagement, but... What we do know is that when the U.S. has tried to attach strings to aid, good governments, democracy, uh, creation of civil society, things that, as the film said, are good for this um, prosperity ladder, that's been a mixed bag at, be- a mixed bag at best and, and, and a disaster you know, um, at worst as seen in Afghanistan. How do, does the U.S., and specifically Congress, put in place policies that encourage you know, this ladder of prosperity? Thank you. I think we also, we have to, in some ways, aid is a distraction. Because aid is just a tiny little piece of this puzzle. And in a lot of ways, like the, 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 the broader policies of trade, domestic policies like agricultural subsidies, you know, these, these have to be put into the conversation as well, rather than kind of having this compartmentalized approach to, okay, here's this box where we care about poor people. And then, like, here's everything else. It's like it's actually the everything else that <laughs> is really affecting uh, people who are in poverty the, the most. You know, they're not it, the aid community isn't causing poverty. They just they just aren't really fulfilling the the, the promise of of eliminating it. Um, so I think that policies, like when we talk about what we should focus on, I think we should we should should focus on some of the anti-competitive. Uh, policies that are in place, things like ag- heavy agricultural subsidies. The fact that we subsidize so heavily certain industries in this country uh, has an effect on, on the poor in, in other countries, especially Latin America and places like Haiti. How? I mean, when we, when we produce such surpluses as we do, and then we have to... Uh, this is the fun thing about being at a place like Cato, right? <laughs> you can really get into the weeds here. So, like, we produce a surplus, then that surplus threatens the price stability of our own market, and by the way, last I checked, 80% of these subsidies are going to 10 companies, okay? So it's not like the American farmer here. 
Um, we produce a surplus. We have to do something with that surplus because we're trying to control the, the, the market. So we have to funnel that surplus into maybe ethanol, uh, trade as much as we can, what's left over, uh, gifts in kind to NGOs with the stipulation that they can sell that, the, that, those commodities abroad to generate revenue. Uh, NGOs like World Vision can make tens of millions of dollars doing this. Um, and, then, uh, and then what happens in these countries? Well, many of them are agrarian countries that want to compete and, as they say, export to us. But they can't possibly compete with our subsidies. It's not, it's, this isn't a level playing field. This is not free. We call it free trade. We export American capitalism to uh, what we call capitalism to, to these countries. But what they experience is really a system where the governments of, of these free market countries are buying out the game before it begins. I, kinda, I was just speaking with somebody before. I, 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 I like the NBA. And the NBA is the National Basketball Association, right? But late, and lately, they've been trying to in, encourage and attract international players, international viewers. They're really expanding. They call it the World Championship. But imagine if they were to say, well, at the end of the day, we're still the National Basketball Association, so only Americans can take steroids. Play ball. Now, you watch a movie like Life and Debt, which is, if you like, like three hours with Jama- of interviews with Jamaican farmers, I highly recommend it. <laughs> they, they look at this system and they say, you know, capitalism sucks. Why? Because it's not free and competitive. They see that we buy out the game. They see that, okay, we go to the WTO. You let us go to the WTO, but you give us three delegates, and there's five meetings that we have to be at once, and the U.S. is 150 delegates. We can't even be at the meetings that we need to be at to, to, to request the policies and the, and the agreements that we want. So in so many ways, we export this crony system that um, guarantees that we that our industries win out over others, and we call it free and competitive, and it's nothing like it. So the question then is, is basketball the problem, or are steroids the problem? And I think this is where, you know, especially when we talk about things like illegal immigration, why are poor farmers so desperate that they'll risk their lives and leave their families to come farm here? Could it have anything to do with, with how we've designed these, this, this system? Could it have anything to do with steroids? And so when, when, when we talk about how do we fix this system, I don't think we should be just looking at aid. In some ways, like I said, it's a distraction. I think we need to look at these other embedded hypocrisies in our system that end up slanting the whole competitive playing field of the market economy in our favor. And it's not free and it's not competitive. Your recipe is really do no harm, isn't it? I think do no harm in is, is, is an important step when we're talking about things like this. So as you, as back to a piece of your question was, you know, is there ever an appropriate time for, for aid or is, is, is it, do we need to ban all aid? I think there's space for life-saving interventions, for instance. I don't think we should be calling it development. I think that's a misnomer. I think life-saving interventions can be made. The problem is, is that a lot of times we end up trying to make life-saving interventions in post-earthquake Haiti, for instance, in a manner that displaces the local capacity to provide those services in the long run. Thus, we extend the period of crisis rather than ameliorate it. And, and so when we, as you say, 
you know, when Bob Geldof famously says, we have to do something even if it doesn't work, he's eliminated the possibility that it could do harm. And that's where we have to be very careful that sometimes doing nothing, it's really hard to have that internal fortitude to do nothing. But sometimes that is the best course of action. Just like when a doctor sees you and he decides, you know, surgery is not the best move right now. You know, you don't want, you come in every, to a doctor and he's just too quick to surgery, that's malpractice. But in, de, but, but, but in development, it's altruism. Uh, yeah, question in the, in the middle section there. That's you. You. Uh, not you. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm pointing <laughs> to the gentleman there who had his hand up. We'll get around to as many people as we can. So, kind of... Uh, Identify yourself, please. Oh, uh, I'm Matt Espinjade. I'm a, uh, actually a camera person. Uh, but, uh, so, kind of jumping off of your um, steroid analogy... I mean, there are certain uh, things that aren't, like, institutional that kind of creates an uneven playing field, like technological innovations and everything like that. So is the solution spreading the steroids around? Spreading, sub, so, well, in this case, subsidies mean, mean governments picking winners and losers in the marketplace. So the thing is, is that even when we have advanced uh, technologies, there, the, there's a myriad of human needs and problems that need to be solved in the world. And there will always be, uh, there will always be need for, uh, for labor and for talent and for capital and investment uh, at, on all those stages. So yes, there is kind of the growing pains. What you're, what you're describing is again, the growing pains of, of market economies that are constantly evolving and growing. So, you know, Taxi drive, the taxi driving industry right now is feeling some pain from Uber, and the hotel industry right now is feeling some pain from, from Airbnb, and uh, the typewriter industry isn't doing so well anymore, <laughs> right? So these are natural growing pains. I mean, sticking with the sports, sorry. I think, I think about a lot of things in terms of sports, but I'm training right now for, for uh, an endurance race, and my legs are sore. It hurts. And the reason I'm sore is because my, I literally, when I train, my, I tear my muscles. When I lift, I, you tear your muscles a little bit. And, and, the, and the process of getting stronger is actually tearing and then rebuilding stronger and rebuilding stronger and rebuilding stronger. So I think we, if we become so uh, allergic to any kind of pain in our economy, for instance, layoffs um, or technological disparities, then we're not really committed to growth because that pain, that rebuilding, in a very similar way as a human body, is, is, is how we build uh, institutions stronger. Breaking them down, uh, preferably not through injury, right, but sticking with the analogy, and then building them stronger. And I think that's, that's, that's what we have to focus on and not trying to kind of control like a chessboard or like a social engineer, you know, moving people around and picking industries that are successful. We've seen time and time and time again that it doesn't work. A book you can check out on that is um, called The Idealist by Nina Monk, which looks at Jeffrey Sachs' uh, Millennium Villages projects, where he tried to do this exact thing, kind of technology transfer, knowledge transfer, 
redistribution only applied intellectually as well as economically, and it ultimately falls apart. It can look good for 10 years if you have enough funding, and then it just it falls apart because the institutions of justice that allow people to, to engage in that project themselves are lacking. I'm afraid we have time for just one last question uh, before we end, and we'll, we'll take it up here in front, please. Quick question, quick answer. Hi, uh, my name is Nirvan. I'm a researcher at uh, Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Um, and my question is, are you seeing any political traction with some of the ideas you're getting here, like slowly closing the taps of foreign aid or restructuring it, anything like that? Have you seen any movement in that direction? No, and we don't really expect traction in that area at this time. Um, one of the, I think the area that I've been most encouraged by are universities, actually. I was just at the Harvard School of Public Health last week, and we'd love to do one at Johns Hopkins, a uh, screening there. Uh, we've done over 100 universities. Harvard and MIT lead the way. Harvard's done 10, I think. School of, the law school, the public health, the Kennedy School, the School of Business, the college. And this is exciting because to be an optimist in this space, you have to believe in incremental change, right? This film, however successful it is, it's not going to disrupt the, the UN and the World Bank and the WTO. It won't. But I think culturally, if we can just push on our culture, especially young leaders who are going to be taking these positions of leadership in these institutions to, tomorrow in our own government, and in, 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 in a lot of cases, the, the screenings here are being organized and led by African student associations. Um, and a lot of these uh, young leaders will be going home after they study here to, to, to build their own countries. So incrementally, I think that we can shape culture, shape uh, our, our understanding of politics and the role of government, uh, understand, shape our understanding and appreciation of the role of market economies uh, and the role of civil society. And I think uh, even though we won't see these, these like, abrupt changes necessarily, I think that that project is beginning to take place and resources like this film can be, can be valuable vehicles uh, in driving that conversation. So I think that's a good place to end, actually. I know there's a lot of influencers in, 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 in this room uh, at Cato and, and, and otherwise. I would, you, know, you may look at you know, 40 film festivals, uh, you know, top 100 on iTunes and all these things and think, oh, these guys are doing fine. They don't need my help. But we really do need your help. You know, we need young leaders like you at universities and think tanks, et cetera, using this film as a vehicle to, to make these voices, to elevate these voices into uh, the dialogue. And hopefully, uh, especially being in, here in DC, hopefully there is somebody in this room that can share this with a congressman or share this with, um, with somebody who is writing legislation, et cetera. I'm up in Boston, so it's not hard for me to, to come on down here and, and do more discussions and figure out how we can uh, apply what we learn in this film going forward in practical ways. I should mention that uh, you can get the film at Amazon and at iTunes. Mm -hmm. uh, and I hope that uh, people take away one of the things that I take away from, from the documentary, and that is that uh, there are real limits to what the United States, as a, as a government, can do to promote development in other countries. Development, as it turns out, has always happened from the bottom up. And it's always dependent on domestic policies and institutions that tend to be impervious to the influences of outside factors. So what really determines development are domestic policies 
domestic institutions, at least in the medium and in the long term. And I think that that's one of the reasons why foreign aid has such a disappointing record. Thank you all for joining us, and please uh, thank our guest today.